for 25 years. Nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all hand-picked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Looking for some amazing TV to stream? Indulge yourself with the hits on Hulu you can't miss. Dive in with Barney, Ted, Robin, and the gang on How I Met Your Mother. All nine seasons are now streaming on Hulu. Then you can move to Modern Family, Schitt's Creek, and My Wife and Kids. We're talking every episode and every season of these shows. We're talking huge hits, streaming on Hulu whenever you're in the mood. Now we're talking. And as Senator McCain now wants to talk about who can bring change to Washington, then that's a debate. That's a debate that I'm happy to have. Listen, it's great that he now wants to talk about putting corporate lobbyists in their place. But he needs to explain why he put seven of them in charge of his campaign. Lobbyists for the insurance industry, and for the oil industry, and for Freddie Mac, and for foreign governments. And if you think those lobbyists are working day and night for John McCain just to put themselves out of business, well, I've got a uh, bridge to sell you up in Alaska. Welcome back to Fraudsters. I'm Cena Gazdavi at Cena Now on all social media. Justin Williams is here. As always, you can find him on Facebook and JustinWilliamsComedy.com. Justin, what's up? Yes. Uh, my comedy album. Uh, <laughs> mostly won't. No, no God. Is, uh, no. Still for sale. Oh, Lord. On Amazon and iTunes. Oh, God. Yes, we can. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're uh, in the community, our texting community, 412-285-1255, I have been humbled, impressed, frightened, intimidated, and excited by all of the messages that we've been getting. I really didn't think it was going to work this well, but so many of you are sending messages. We've got like two seasons worth of ideas already just in our texting community. And as always, we are going to let people know about live events uh, that are going to be happening, like our happy hour that we will announce next week. So you will only get that link if you're in the community app to see Justin and I have some drinks along with Hazel and Marie and anyone else from the Fraudsters or the LPN fam that wants to join. So normally on this show, we cover a fraudster, we cover the scam, we cover the victims, we cover, you know, how they did it. But in this episode, I wanted to take a moment and talk about a moment in history. And that's the late 1800s into very early 1900s. And what we have then is a, just a fever pitch of fraud. But in the late 1800s, fraud was almost 
easy. There were literally fewer people around. I think it was only 65 million people in around 1890 or so. Communication doesn't travel that quickly. So if you wanted to defraud someone in one town, you could just go to the other town and do the same thing. You could probably even go from one neighborhood to the other. And there's also contextually the issue of timing here. If you think of the period uh, between 1880 and 1920, you're talking about a time after the Civil War. You're talking about a time as America is rebuilding itself. And what is the engine of that economic growth? It is industrialization and immigration. People are coming from all over the world to take part in America's newfound prosperity, a time when places like Newark, New Jersey, New York City, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, <laughs> where we'll all be, uh, Buffalo will be the richest places in the world during this period. <laughs> Why are you laughing so hard, Justin? <laughs> <laughs> well, things are going to take a, a turn by the time we get to the 1970s. But at this point, these places where the places you want to be, you know why? And you, you know, and you know how you can tell all these places were wealthy during this time go check out the art museum and all of these places full of the world's treasures taken by the robber baron class of the day god bless all of the carnegies and vanderbilts of those eras and you know what's funny about that era as well is that even in the Supreme Court, there was this huge push to basically deregulate the economy, to make contracts much easier to get into. While at the same time, there was workers' rights that were coming up. People were getting more protections uh, because people were actually dying in mines and in uh, you know workplaces, and they had to get better laws. What does that mean, though, And uh, for context? It means that the economics were pumping and everybody was hustling. Absolutely. And part of that hustle is immigration. During this period of 1880 to 1920, America received about 20 million immigrants from around the world, right? And that manpower was necessary to combine with industrial power to do things like the expansion of the New York City subway, for instance, digging tunnels and combining uh, the IRT system and the BMT system into our modern day New York City subway system. In short, manpower, money in the street, ambition, a fertile breeding ground for fraud. Oh my God, I love Rick Ross. I mean, he really speaks to the spirit of the show. Now, there's all kinds of different people we could talk about, but I think there's two people that really illustrate how hilariously fraudulent it really was in the late 1800s. And that is what I like to call the king and queen of fraudsters, George C. Parker and Cassie Chadwick. So George C. Parker was born in 1860, and he is the namesake. He is the result of the clip you heard in the beginning of the show. If you believe that, then I have a bridge to sell you. A man did something so much that they invented a phrase around him. George C. Parker, born in 1860, grew up to fraudulently sell the Brooklyn Bridge twice in one week. Obviously, he didn't really sell it, but he got money from people. And he tried to create these fictional deeds that would assign ownership to these people who ever bought them. Justin, have you ever used the phrase, if you believe that I have a bridge to sell you? It seems like an old-timey phrase. I don't know. If you don't think that I've ever used that phrase, I have a bridge in Newark to sell you. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, obviously, I don't think we used it. I don't. I've never really used it either. But I don't know. It's like I don't know if I ever used it. But I, yeah, I'm like aware of it, uh, like what it means. Like I know that means there. You don't really have a bridge for sale. Exactly. That is what we know, right? That's what we, the, the general consensus is. That like, okay, obviously, you don't have it because people don't sell bridges. Is really the idea there? Is like we don't really think about bridges being sold by a human, like one person. Yeah. And you, you don't ever want to maybe buy a bridge from someone that's in that desperate situation. If you see a guy, you know, scratching his neck and he's like, I got this bridge, baby. Like, <laughs> you, you might wonder, like, how well that bridge has been maintained in yeah. the past before <laughs> going on to the market. You know, you need to do your due diligence. I'll tell you who no one did due diligence on. And that's George C. Parker. He sold deeds to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And he posed as Ulysses S. Grant's grandson to try to sell the general's tomb. He prayed on the vulnerable. Anybody got, I got tombs two for five. <laughs> yeah. Yo, <laughs> what's funny is that, you know, he would go up to immigrants that were coming to Ellis Island, real, you know, vulnerable people in the 1800s, immigrants coming to this country for a better tomorrow. And he's rolling up to them like, hey, you want Grant's tomb? <laughs> <laughs> He was actually paying stewards that were working on these ships arriving at Ellis Island to identify potential customers or marks, right, at that point, that he could convince to invest in whatever weird real estate or not real real estate that he actually was doing. I can imagine some immigrant from Italy or Ireland thinking, man, America really is the land of opportunity. I've only been here for five minutes and I just bought Madison Square Garden from this guy. (laughs) Oddly enough, Madison Square Garden is one of the places that George C. Parker would sell deeds to, right? He would sell it just like a piece of paper. Not just the Madison Square Garden. He sold uh, the Statue of Liberty, the Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, he did all of these things. Now, first, let's be clear. He didn't actually sell any of these places. Now, we could call it attempting to sell, but he did get money from people quite often for these huge purchases. And so whether or not we call it a sale or not, I think it doesn't even matter. He's a fraudster of frauds, like a proto-fraudster. He is a fraudster before fraudsters, like an original OG fraudster. So this is what he had to do. He made fake offices, Fake names like James J. O'Brien and Warden Kennedy. Isn't Warden Kennedy, isn't that an ad agency somewhere? I think it's maybe it's Wyden Kennedy. But yeah, he did a lot. Those sound like fake names. Not real like real names like Jim Adler, the Texas Hammer. He's the best <laughs> he's the best attorney in Texas if you watch daytime television. <laughs> there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Looking for some amazing TV to stream? Indulge yourself with the hits on Hulu you can't miss. 
Dive in with Barney, Ted, Robin, and the gang on How I Met Your Mother. All nine seasons are now streaming on Hulu. Then you can move to Modern Family, Schitt's Creek, and My Wife and Kids. We're talking every episode and every season of these shows. We're talking huge hits, streaming on Hulu whenever you're in the mood. Now we're talking. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. But when it comes to the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, obviously he didn't own it. New York City owns it. And Parker convinced these sellers that the new owners could actually put up toll booths to charge pedestrians access to Manhattan. I tell you what, Justin, I, I do. I really wish I got into the toll business. You got to pay the troll toll. <laughs> the Brooklyn Bridge actually used to be a toll bridge that pedestrians had to pay to cross to get into Manhattan. This was the case from its opening in 1883. Pedestrians on foot would pay a penny. Horse riders would pay five cents. Horse and wagon riders would pay 10 cents. And pedestrian trolls... <laughs> he got me with the trolls. The pedestrian <laughs> tolls were ceased in 1891, while the roadway tolls were stopped on July 19th, 1911, by then New York Mayor William J. Gaynor. He declared, quote, I see no more reason for toll gates on the bridges than for toll gates on Fifth Avenue or Broadway. That's a big deal. You figure a lot of commuter traffic, a lot of lower income people are trying to get into the city to work. They're being charged for that. So this guy's saying, hey, no more charging for getting into the city. There's a little bit of a caveat, though, uh, especially when this comes to the New York City subway system where mayors campaigned on keeping the fare at a nickel. The problem would be is that with the massive expansion of these uh, systems that, you know, digging tunnels and things like that, uh, a lot of public transportation systems are actually going to go into huge deficits. So going back to the Brooklyn Bridge, one of the highest bids for the Brooklyn Bridge was for $50,000, which is $750,000 in today's money. Apparently, when this guy was at his peak, he sold the Brooklyn Bridge twice in a week. <laughs> I love that hustle, baby. Yeah, he's so he's hustling so hard. And you know, I think what's amazing about this guy and what he did, it was just pure confidence and a little bit of just falsifying documents. And it's not that hard. He would even end up getting convicted of fraud on three separate occasions. One, which was amazing, in 1908, he was arrested for stealing a sheriff's hat. His, the Sheriff Flaherty is the sheriff in question here. And he stole the sheriff's hat, the overcoat of the sheriff, and walked right out of prison, unnoticed. <laughs> <laughs> the confidence that you'd have to have to do that is unreal. I couldn't find anything on his second arrest, uh, but his third and final was on December 17th, 1928, where he was sentenced to life at Sing Sing for the Brooklyn Bridge fraud, among others. Stop, that's not Sheriff Flaherty. That's three small convicts stacked into his overcoat. <laughs> okay, if George C. Parker is the K 
king, or at least I guess he's the king of swindlers in the late 1800s, then the true queen, the real queen of swindlers, the witch of finance, as the newspapers used to call her, is Cassie Chadwick. And this story comes from Tori Telfer's book, Confident Women, a great book full of swindlers and scamming women, and it's a must-read. You guys should definitely pick it up. She was nice enough to send us a copy, so I'm going to give her a little shout-out. Got to give a shout-out to all the ladies doing financial <laughs> crimes. We appreciate you. You are equal opportunity fraudster. <laughs> In the late 1800s and early 1900s, Cassie Chadwick Justin was this sweet con woman who used her high society status to convince people that she was wealthy. Huh. Interesting. Where have we heard that before? Hmm. Let's... <laughs> Delve into our memories. <laughs> Jesus, the funds today. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. You know, Cassie was amazing. She was even able to convince people that she was the actual daughter of Andrew Carnegie. That's like me saying I'm Jeff Bezos' son right now. That's the equivalent. I, I would love to know what how she convinced me. Like, if I'm not Andrew Carnegie's daughter, uh, then how did I get this pure Pittsburgh steel? <laughs> remind me not to tell you that but i mean you know her her main fraud her main scam was to go to these bankers profess to them that she had overspent at a jewelry store or boutique and that she was just a a woman with with her head that's gone right out the window and that she couldn't possibly go back to her husband with this news that she had spent all this money if the banker could just give her a loan to cover the bill she would pay him back and even give the banker a nice bonus. What a sweet, sweet woman. Oh, it's a great thing. I you know, I actually try this. I try this. It doesn't yeah. work. It doesn't work as well for me. I go to the bank and I go, I overspent at the jewelry store. And uh, I can't actually go back to my wife, but I promise I'll give you the money back. It doesn't work somehow when I do it. It doesn't. I can't imagine why that didn't work. But you asked about Andrew Carnegie. She was already doing all of these scams and stuff, and she wanted to upgrade and really flex. So she said, told people that she was Andrew Carnegie's daughter. And to one of these bankers, she actually got driven to Andrew Carnegie's house, went into his home, and stayed there for a little bit, for like 20 minutes, came back out, and she had all of these papers, even signed by Andrew Carnegie himself. In reality... None of those papers were real. She had forged them. She had taken them into the to the Carnegie house with her before she, before she in reality, none of those papers were real. She had forged all of them before she went into the house and just chatted with the staff in the foyer of the house. So she never even really went in. And then 20 minutes later when she comes back out, this guy's like, she must be Carnegie's daughter. This is amazing. <laughs> I like it too because you could t- you know, she's definitely hiding those papers in some like big fluffy like hula hoop, hula hoop skirt, like pride and prejudice dress. With like exactly, a, with, you gotta with, have like a huge box, like a dress is coming in giant boxes back then, right? <laughs> yeah. They still do. <laughs> so she's stacking all of these bankers together. And so what do you do when you stack bankers and you take loans from out that you can't pay off? Well, you get a loan from the next guy and you pay some to the previous guy. 
And these bankers kept giving her money time and time again, not just one time, like multiple times she would go back to them. One guy, he was an older guy, when she told him that she couldn't pay him at that moment, he fainted. He straight up fainted because he was so worried about her. And he believed that she was Carnegie's daughter. This is insane. <laughs> and you know, it was like Andrew Mellon or somebody like that. It was like, <laughs> it's like, it's like somebody whose name is in granite right now on Wall Street. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Looking for some amazing TV to stream? Indulge yourself with the hits on Hulu you can't miss. Dive in with Barney, Ted, Robin, and the gang on How I Met Your Mother. All nine seasons are now streaming on Hulu. Then you can move to Modern Family, Schitt's Creek, and My Wife and Kids. We're talking every episode and every season of these shows. We're talking huge hits, streaming on Hulu whenever you're in the mood. Now we're talking. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Passed out. <laughs> and so besides like going and, and professing all of these different lies to these bankers to convince them that she was Carnegie's daughter, she would have parties at her house and she would get her staff, you know, her servants, because, you know, she was of a certain level of society. She would get them to dress up like rich wives and convince the bankers that she was actually wealthy. Yeah, it was just an amazing amazing run of scams she did but like all of these fraudsters they come to an end because you can't stack victims up like that eventually you're gonna get sued and when she did her whole world blew up this is all in cleveland so the cleveland press got it everyone started finding out that she was doing all this shit and she got arrested and at her trial justin andrew fucking carnegie shows up but he's not upset it's like he was almost proud that his credit was that good, that someone could just be like, yeah, he's my dad. Give me all this money. <laughs> Nobody's gotten away with that much since LeBron's kids lived in Cleveland. <laughs> For Carnegie, I mean, even at the trial, Andrew Carnegie is quoted as saying, and this is right from the book, would you not feel glad to know that someone has been able to get $2 million by simply signing your name to a piece of paper? He's laughing at that. $2 million. Yeah, and, and our money, that's like, what? how much is that? Like $8 million or something? Maybe more, right? That is actually over $58 million. <laughs> <laughs> so to put that into perspective, like that's like, 
That's how much Master P was making at like the height of his popularity. <laughs> so it's like it, she she forged enough signatures to make enough money to where she had make them say uh as a platinum record <laughs> with her own doll and her own sports management company. <laughs> she had it all, but then she lost it all, Justin. She lost it all. She went to prison and in prison, Justin, we talked a lot about this, that how much emotional stress it must be to hold on to all those lies for so long and to keep that going. I mean, she was really going hard. She ended up dying in 1907 of nerve exhaustion. They say that's caused by carrying too many papers in your corset. Exactly. The news media at that time called her the witch of finance and the queen of the swindlers. So that is officially our queen to our king. Or rather, I think it's frankly the king to our queen. Shout out to all the ladies out there forging documents. We've been talking a lot about the late 1800s and how it's a ripe time for scamming. And so I wanted to talk about some other frauds that had happened at that time. And NPR did a great write-up of this because it's known that, you know, fraud was big in the late 1800s. So this first one is called the Disappearing Act. It's two women, and they were often assisted by a man, and they were notorious for pulling off this ploy, uh, and this was reported in 1881 by the Cincinnati Inquirer, and the three would show up at a town. The man would rent some rooms for the ladies at a lavish boarding house, and the two would then go on a huge shopping spree at, at a store. And they would select a bunch of goods and, and, you know, laces and valuable materials that you could easily throw out. The women would instruct the merchant to send the goods around to the boarding house so that they could try them on. When the store representative arrived, one of the ladies would be in the parlor to say that she was taking all of the merchandise to show her sister and husband. What do you think happened? The swindlers would disappear from the house with all the clothing and all the stuff, leaving the messenger patiently waiting for his cash. This guy, a polite man trying to make a buck, just getting hosed. Now, I I can already feel in the tone that I've taken with this episode that we're not really taking it to the fraudsters like we normally do. But it was the late 1800s, and like I think it's kind of funny anything that happens before 1900. <laughs> it just seems so weird. I would say as a black person, I would say anything that happened before 1965 is not funny at all. <laughs> um, sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. I shouldn't be laughing. I'm not. I apologize for laughing. I'm not sorry. Here's another one. <laughs> what? Oh my god! I hope I get canceled for. That. I hope this is the thing that gets gets me canceled. Uh, I don't understand how these guys. I, again, this kind of goes back to the original thing. I think we've talked about maybe since the beginning of the season. I wouldn't have the ability to stay in character and take that much from someone and not one start laughing because they fell for this stupid. Stupid prank. Like, a lot of these could be in, in like, punked or something. You know, right? A lot of these could just be in, like, a reality show. It's like, oh, we got you. Lost all those diamonds. Ah, yes, laddies and lasses. We'll tell you about the old ploy of the wallet inspector. 
a man with a giant mustache would come to town and inspect all of the townspeople's wallets. And before the blink of an eye, he would ride away with them on his horse. It was the oldest <laughs> trick in the book that worked in 47 towns in a row before people ever got on. Well, speaking of horses, this next one's about <laughs> horse trading. Uh, this next one, I'll read it directly from the Parsons Daily Sun in Kansas. Uh, this happened in July of 1889. Swindlers have struck a new scheme for beating the unhappy Granger who is inclined to make money more rapidly than by the paths of strict rectitude. What the hell? I mean, a Granger, I had to look this up. A Granger is actually... Basically, a, almost like a tax collector on a farm. So it's the occupation for a farm bailiff. And the farm bailiff goes around and gets the rent and the taxes from the barns and storehouses uh, that are in the area. So this guy dressed up and shows up at the farmhouse and offers to buy a good horse. He gives the horse owner $10 and promises to return in a week to pay the difference and collect his horse. Okay, so let me break this down. A dapperly dressed man, number one, let's call him man number one, shows up at a farmhouse and offers to buy a good horse. He gives the horse owner $10 and promises to return in a week to pay the difference and collect his horse. The next day, well-dressed man number two appears at the same farm and expresses keen interest in the same horse, a horse that, in fact, he must own. He offers 10, 15, 25 more dollars than the price that man number one offered. The farmer says he can't sell the horse, so man number two says he will come back in a week, and if the horse is still available, he will pay the extra $25 for it. When man number one returns, the farmer wants to keep the horse and make the extra money, so he gives man number one his $10 back and an extra $10 for his troubles. Number one takes the money, <laughs> is $10 in head, half of which he gives to number two, and the farmer still owns the horse. Yes, this move is also called the Bojack. And one thing you should never do is Bojack a horseman. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Here we go. We got here. <laughs> oh man uh, you see people logging off in the analytics <laughs> <laughs> all right everybody uh that is the show you know maybe these fraudsters are just a bunch of fiddling bends they've been called a lot of things mister but they've never been called fiddling bends fiddling bends right if they knew what in the hell that meant they might be inclined to take offense. Fiddling Ben is a fellow who would steal anything, dead or alive, because he's too low to work up a decent lay for himself. Hmm. Chisler. If you had said Chisler, now that's a word I understand. Is that what you're calling them? I can think of a number of things to call them. Boyle? Right. But I ask you if you was calling them Chislers. Supposing I am. Well, that seems like a good place to end this episode. <laughs> All right, everybody. That's a short one for you this week because we got a ton of deep stuff coming to you, including a multi-part series on a crypto queen, uh, Enron, and a couple more historic fraudsters that are coming up down the pipe. And also, 
one current one that hopefully will have some new news for us in the coming weeks. And thank you to Martin Scorsese for writing that sketch that we ended with there. That's from it's adapted from Gangs of New York, if you didn't. If you didn't catch that. If you didn't yeah. memorize the whole movie. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's not even one of the famous parts. Yeah. <laughs> this is a night for Americans. <laughs> All right, guys. Big thanks to Emily Fusco on research, Hazel Bryan on producing, Marie Anderson on the edit, Hannah Shaw on our legal research, and thanks to the whole Last Podcast Network team. This has been a production of Zero Cool Media and LPN. For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all handpicked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.